I want to spend a, a little bit of time this morning in review so that we can uh, kind of put today's thoughts in context. In a moment, we're going to read our scripture text for this morning, which is Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to that or turn on your devices and uh, navigate to that, Acts 7, 1 to 17. Uh, but before we do that, let's take a moment to, to review what we learned last week. Luke, the writer of this volume known to us as the Acts of the Apostles, is is still unfolding to us uh, the powerful story of this remarkable man whose name was Stephen. Stephen was one of seven Greek men chosen by the congregation of the church in Jerusalem and commissioned by the apostles to administer the daily distribution of food to the widows in the church in Jerusalem. And the ministries of these seven men taken together relieved the young church of a serious crisis and relieved the apostles of a new responsibility that would have distracted them from their primary role of preaching and teaching God's word and carrying on a daily ministry of prayer. As Luke introduces us to Stephen, he describes him as a man of good reputation, a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, full of faith, full of grace and power, and a worker of signs and wonders. In today's text, we're also going to discover that he was a powerful preacher, a man who knew his Bible, uh, which, of course, for him and everyone else at that time happened to be what we know now as the Old Testament. A man who understood how the entire flow of biblical history, including the law and the prophets, um, incrementally but inexorably led to Jesus Christ. It occurs to me that he was also a man uh, who clearly met the qualification of an elder given later by the Apostle Paul to his friend Titus when he said of an elder that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. To, who contradict it. And that was very clearly Stephen's wheelhouse. Um, I don't know if you've felt like I do, but after having been introduced uh, to us so unassumingly, just one of seven guys, I'm, I'm kind of blown away by not only the realization of the character and the courage of, of this man as we saw last week, but also by the power of the Holy Spirit that, that he exudes, that just flows through him with great freedom. And remember where we are here in, in the history of the, the early church. We're not that far out from Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church and the the mission of the church was inaugurated. We're, we're not told when it was that Stephen became a disciple of Jesus, but, but seemingly out of the blue comes this godly, gifted, determined, powerful man with a deep, unwavering faith in Jesus. And I find myself asking, where do men like Stephen come from? Perhaps he was one of the 3,000 who believed the message of the gospel as Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost. Or maybe he was one of the 5,000 men who believed the message when 
Peter preached in Solomon's portico after the lame man had been healed at the beautiful gate. Or maybe it was when Peter and John were preaching and teaching on the streets of Jerusalem. Or maybe a friend or a family member had believed in Jesus as Messiah and had been praying for Stephen and then, and then he heard the gospel through them or someone else and believed. We, we just don't know. But here's something I do know, that the Holy Spirit had taken hold of Stephen in a radically wonderful, powerful way. And you know what? God is still looking today for Stephen's and Stephanie's. Men and women of faith, character, courage, who are fully devoted to Jesus Christ. How desperately we need men and women like this in our day. Here's something else I know that the Stevens and the Stephanies in our families, among our friends, and in our workplaces may never know Christ unless you and I begin to pray regularly for them and then share the message of the gospel with them. And as a tool to get us moving in that direction in your program this morning, we've, we've inserted this black double card. If you just pull that out right now, I'd appreciate it. It, it says, one... Who is yours? One, who is yours? What are you supposed to do with this card? Uh, well, on the back, it says, Matthew eighteen twelve. if a man has a hundred sheep, one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? He goes after the one. And then if you see at the bottom of that top section, it says keep, and the bottom of the lower section, it says turn in. And just above those words, keep and turn in, is a, a line on which to write the name of one person for whom you will commit to pray consistently, persistently, tenaciously, uh, over the long term, and with whom you will commit to share the gospel, to look for opportunities to share the gospel with them until they come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. Well, why a double card? What I'd, what I'd like you to do is on that top portion, uh, write the full name of your one. Um, and, and then, uh, tear that off. And on the bottom, um, just write the first name of that person. So you keep the one you, you take the one you're keeping, put it in a place where you're going to see it on a regular basis. Maybe it's your bathroom mirror or your, refrigerator or on your computer monitor at the office or on the dashboard of your car. And then take that other one, write just the first name because we don't need to know the last name. Uh, God knows who they are. We're going to pray for them by their first name and we're going to compile a list of these and share them with all of you. And we're going to pray together for these ones and uh, and see what God will do and see if we don't see a harvest of people coming to know Jesus Christ. If you're not ready today to decide uh, who your one will be, uh, you can bring it back next week. Here's my hunch, though. I'm pretty sure that uh, you know who that person is right now. Um, and uh, if you're like me, you, you might misplace that card and forget to return it next week if you don't do it today.
So, so who's your one? Who's your one? Let's, let's see what God will do in the days and months and years ahead as we pray consistently for the Spirit to work in their lives to bring them to personal faith in Jesus. Will you join me in this? At least one person will. Good. All right. That's good. Did I mention that the one you turn in, you put in the offering box at the back? Did I already say that? I didn't. Or were you just not listening? I probably didn't. So take that one that you're going to turn in, put it in the offering box in the back as you leave today. Well, let's pray for for our ones. And by the way, it's okay to have more than one one, but it's not okay to have less than one one. Okay? So let's begin praying for those people. Let me pray right now over them. Lord, you know who these people are in each of our lives. And uh, Lord, I'm just praying that... uh, that we would be faithful to pray and that we would be faithful to look for opportunities to share the life-transforming message of the gospel with with these people who, whom we know and love. And Lord, we know that you know them better than we do and that you love them more than we do and uh, that unless the Father draws them, no one can come to you. And so, uh, Lord, we pray that you would do the drawing, that we would not get in the way of your Holy Spirit, but let him do his work in their lives uh, as we pray. And we commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now let's stand and read together our scripture text this morning. Acts chapter 7, 1 through 17. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, the chapter, chapter 7, begins with a question. The question is, are these things so? Are these things so? Well, what were these things? Let me read to you from chapter 6, verses 9 to 15, which we considered last week. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen's doing his thing. He's carrying out his ministry, and and, and suddenly... Um, opposition arises against him. And they bring four accusations in verses 11 to 14. Blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the law, and blasphemy against the temple. Well, what is blasphemy? What does it mean to blaspheme? It's not a word we, we hear or we use very much these days. To blaspheme is to slander, to speak slander, to speak disrespectfully, to speak irreverently or offensively against someone or something, usually of a sacred nature. And to the Jews, nothing was more sacred, nothing was more precious than God, than Moses, through whom God had given the law, than the law itself, and the temple. Blasphemy, blaspheme those four things, and there's pretty much nothing and no one left to blaspheme. You've, you've pretty much said it all at that point. You know, we're not told how long it was that the council gazed at Stephen, or even what Luke meant when he said that they saw that Stephen's face was like that of an angel. But however long it may have been, At some point, there came the voice of Caiaphas, the high priest, asking, Are these things so? Are these things so? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and and just assume that none of us in this room uh, have ever been subjected to such a high-stakes interrogation uh, before such a hostile crowd. So we, the uh, the uninitiated and the inexperienced, ought to take a moment to think about what Stephen's task was in this moment. Or more precisely, we 
we ought to thoughtfully consider what we learn from the text about what Stephen perceived his task to be. It would seem that he considered his task to be threefold. First, he had to gain their ears, uh, just get them to listen to him for a little while. And he does that by identifying with them, by demonstrating the things um, that are precious to them are also precious to him. Secondly, I think he had to answer the charge of blasphemy, not not simply to defend himself, but more to demonstrate that his position, far from being blasphemous, actually honored God's word, actually was consistent with God's word. And he did that by rehearsing the the salient features of the history of Israel in a way that revealed truths that, that perhaps they had either never learned or that they had overlooked or that they had never thought of in, in, in a particular way. Some people reading Stephen's message to his accusers in, in Acts 7 would just say, well, he's just giving a history of Israel. Uh, but that's actually not true at all as you begin to, exa- to examine the text. And then third, he had an effect to turn the table on them and, and to demonstrate that that they themselves were guilty of the very things of which they were accusing him. As one commentator put it, before he finishes his testimony, the accused becomes the accuser of the nation. The one to be judged becomes the judge. And Stephen selected four major periods of Israel's history and featuring five major characters. He began with the call of Abraham and then transitioned to Joseph and the the Egyptian exile, the Egyptian slavery, and that's what we're going to cover this morning. And third then, and we'll see this next week, Stephen shifts his focus to Moses and the leadership of Israel through the exodus from Egypt and the wilderness wanderings. And then fourth and finally, he concludes with David and Solomon in the construction of the temple. And he really compresses history in a big way. But the common thread that he exposes woven through these four important periods in Israel's history is this, that God, uh, God's presence has never been limited to any particular place. Very important to understand. Instead, he shows them that the God of the Old Testament is a living God, a God who is not bound to a temple or to a city or to a nation, a God who comes to people, whoever they are, wherever they are, and calls them according to his purposes. And each of those places, wherever it is in the world, each of those places becomes holy ground. Why? Because he makes it holy by his presence. In verse 2 then, Stephen begins his defense by addressing the court. Notice his choice of words. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. 
And, and actually, the literal translation is, men, brothers, and fathers, hear me. As a Jew himself, he's one of them. His accusers are his brothers, the, the Sanhedrin, consisting of the chief priests and scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are his fathers. And he appeals to them first by identifying with them. And then his defense begins with a consideration of Abraham. Abraham, chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. And he begins this way, The God of glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Notice here uh, that he refers to the God of Israel as the God of glory. How many of you know how many times that title for God appears in the Old Testament? Anybody know? I'll tell you, just once. Just once. In Psalm 29 at verse 3. And here's what we need to understand about that. All of them would have been very familiar with it because it's a recitation of the attributes of God. Listen as I read. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. And here it is, the God of glory. God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian or Syria like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. You know, throughout Stephen's defense, he mentions God 19 times. And in so doing, he's saying, look, I'm not a blasphemer. I'm a Jew. I'm one of you. I believe in El Hakabod, the God of glory. He goes on and he says, The God of glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia and removed him to Canaan. Verses 2 to 4, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him. Isn't that interesting language? God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. By the way, neither Mesopotamia nor Haran are anywhere inside the boundaries of Israel, the promised land, the land of Canaan. 
And notice with me the divine initiative in relation to Abraham. It's God who appears. It's God who speaks. It's God who commands, who removes Abraham from one place to another, from Haran to Canaan. Going, going on in the text, it's God who promises, God who judges, God who initiates his covenant with Abraham. And notice where it was that God appeared to Abraham. It was while he was living in Mesopotamia, specifically in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, uh, one of the one of the largest cities on earth in its day, a very sophisticated city for its time, a place in which Abraham and his family worshipped other gods. And even though Abraham was at the time a pagan idolater, God spoke to Abraham and told him to uproot himself from his home and his people and to migrate to another country, which he would later show him. Uh, And it's Abraham who obeys. Writer of Hebrews describes the obedient faith of Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Isn't that interesting? He went out not knowing where he was going, kind of like a, a Sunday afternoon drive. Remember those back when you could afford them? Where are we going, honey? I don't know. Let's just get in the car and drive. Where are we going, God? I'll show you later. Just get moving. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. But even though God moved Abraham to the land of Canaan, Stephen continues on, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So Abraham sojourned in a land that was not his, living only on a promise. That's all. That's it. Only on a promise, only by faith. In fact, the only piece of land that Abraham ever owned in Canaan was a burial site. And and God promised to give the land of Canaan as a possession to Abraham, even though Abraham never, ever owned it in his lifetime, and to his offspring after him, even though he had no child. But you may recall that the God brought Abraham outside one night when the, when the heavens were just ablaze with, with, with stars. And he says to him, look toward heaven and number the stars. Can you do that, Abraham? If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, the father of those who are justified by a faith that results in obedience. Then God filled in some of the blanks in Abraham's understanding. 
And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. What was the name of that land? There's a courageous person, Egypt. That's right. The land belonging to others was Egypt. You can read God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14. And Stephen must have been satisfied with a nice round number because, in fact, his descendants were in Egypt for a total of 430 years. And then God judged Egypt, didn't he? Boy, did he judge Egypt. He judged Egypt severely. Remember the ten plagues culminating with, with the tenth, which, which meant the, the death of the firstborn of both man and animal in every household in all of Egypt. With the exception of those homes of the Israelites where the blood of the lamb had been applied to the lintels and the doorposts. And to top it all off, God just drowned the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. God was with Abraham. God was with Abraham. Why? In giving to Abraham the covenant of circumcision, he made a solemn promise to Abraham to bless him and his descendants, and he gave him circumcision as the sign and the seal of that covenant. In Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Well, what's the point of all of this? I think it's this, that Before there was a holy place, there was a holy people. Before there was a holy place, there was a holy people. God pledged himself to Abraham and his descendants after him, renewed the covenant, the promise, first to his son Isaac, and then to his grandson Jacob, and then to his great-grandsons, the twelve patriarchs. And so Joseph uses this moment to pivot, to turn his focus now away from Abraham and to one of his great-grandsons, Joseph. Chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Uh, You can read the entire story of the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37 
in chapters 39 to 48. So uh, you can see Stephen is radically compressing history. The first thing we learn about Joseph from Stephen is that he was rejected by his brothers, the patriarchs. Joseph and his brothers became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, hence the title patriarch. Joseph was the son of Jacob's old age. And and Jacob loved Joseph more than the rest of his sons. So his brothers were jealous of Joseph. And that jealousy morphed into an intense hatred. You You can imagine that, can't you? A house full of boys. One of them is daddy's little favorite. Daddy buys special clothing for him, not for us. Daddy has a a special vision in mind for him. So at an opportune moment, they sold Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And uh, he was taken by his captors, the slave traders, down to Egypt. And there he was sold to a man named Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And Stephen's quick to say that God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph, verse, verses 9 and 10. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Just, just imagine from from being in a pit in the desert, bought by slave traders, ending up as a slave in Egypt, and in very short order being elevated to rule over the entire nation of Egypt. Joseph's afflictions included being sold into slavery in the first place by his brothers who should have loved him, but instead envied and hated him. His afflictions also included being falsely accused of attempted rape by the sexually aggressive wife of Potiphar and ending up in prison for over two years. But something we read over and over in the Genesis account is that the Lord was with Joseph and caused everything Joseph did to succeed. And eventually Joseph was delivered from that imprisonment. And he was finally exalted to the highest level of power over all of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh himself. You see, if if Mesopotamia was a surprising location for God's appearance to Abraham, then Egypt is equally surprising as the scene of God's dealings with Joseph, his father, his brothers during a time of intense famine. And six times in seven verses, Stephen in his defense before the Sanhedrin, repeats the word Egypt as if to make sure that that they heard him and grasped its significance. God gave Joseph wisdom not only to interpret dreams, but also to, to implement a strategy in Egypt that would save the nation and deliver Joseph's family in particular from starvation. In verses 12 to 14, Stephen outlines three visits to Egypt by Joseph's brothers. In verse 12, their goal was very simple. It was to acquire grain. Jacob understood that a famine was coming. He said, boys, get on down to Egypt. I've heard there's grain there. And so they got on their Kawasaki's and headed down the trail. 
On the second visit in verse 13, Joseph makes himself known to them. A very, very dramatic, emotion-packed scene. And in verse 14, the third visit is when Joseph's brothers bring their father Jacob with them, together with their wives and children. And then it was in Egypt that Jacob and all of his sons died. Far from the land promised to Abraham, to which they never, ever personally returned. Only their bodies were brought back to be buried there. But in Egypt, their descendants increased and multiplied until they became a great nation within another great nation. And it's right there that Stephen brings his consideration of Joseph to an end. And as we begin to draw this to a close this morning, I hope that in listening to the story, you've you may have detected, at least in part, the striking parallels between the experience of Joseph and the experience of Jesus Christ. Joseph foreshadows Jesus, whom they ultimately rejected, who suffered, and who ultimately became their deliverer and our deliverer. Joseph was uniquely and deeply loved by his father. Jesus is God's only begotten son, loved by God the Father from all eternity. Out of jealousy, Joseph was sold by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold by his one of his brothers for a sum of 30 pieces of silver. Joseph suffered rejection and false accusations leading to imprisonment. Jesus was despised and rejected as well, and on the basis also of false and trumped-up charges, was convicted and condemned to death on a cross. Joseph became the deliverer of his family and of all Egypt from death. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, the the Savior of anyone, anywhere, who will look to him in faith and be saved from the penalty and the power of sin, which is death. Pharaoh exalted Joseph to the highest office in the land to exercise the highest power and authority in all Egypt and required everyone to bow down to him. God raised Jesus from the dead, exalted him to the highest place, and gave to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, as they they did not recognize Joseph then until they saw him a second time, so the Jews will not recognize their Messiah until he comes the second time. John said of Jesus that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The prophet Isaiah said that he was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness, and like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we had no regard for him. God spoke through the prophet Zechariah, saying that a day is fast approaching, 
when I will pour out, he says, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 29 to 31, that at the close of that seven-year period that is known as the tribulation, that will follow the immediately follow on the rapture of the church, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And of course they will mourn because they'll realize in their horror that it's too late for those who have rejected him to make another decision. And in fact, it will be too late for anyone who has not yet put their faith and trust in Christ because what comes next, what comes next is judgment. And I wonder, does that describe you today? That that you've rejected Jesus. You've just dismissed him as an option in your life. The promises of the Bible... And the signs of the times are converging. If you're a student of prophecy, even at a minimal level, and you're watching the nightly news, you can't miss it. That convergence is accelerating. Jesus is coming. And he's coming first for the church. And that day will be very soon. It it could be in our lifetime It could be this week. It could be this afternoon, for that matter. The Apostle Paul, writing to believers in Jesus, said of that moment, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's going to get loud. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always, we will always, always, always be with the Lord. So let me ask you again, are you ready for the coming of Jesus? Or have you, like Joseph's brothers and like Jesus' fellow Israelites, rejected him? See, here's some good news for you. You still have time, at least I think. You still have time. The time is right now. The Apostle John did write, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But then he added this, but to all who did receive him, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. What does that mean? It means that when you look to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and you transfer your trust from whatever it is you've been trusting in to Him, 
and what he accomplished for you at the cross. God responds by forgiving your sins on the basis of Christ's sacrifice for your sins at the cross. He gives you the gift of eternal life and he adopts you as his very own child. He brings you into his own family. He's not ashamed to call you his son or his daughter anymore because you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So again, let me ask you, might today be the day that you'll receive him, that you'll believe in him and put your faith in him? Don't delay. He's coming soon. In fact, I believe he's right at the door. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this scripture text. Thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts right down to the places where we are living. It cuts right down to the places in our hearts where we're making our decisions. And Lord, may we not be found apathetic. May we not be found negligent. May we not be found to have rejected you in the final analysis. But let us trust in you. We pray for those whose names will appear on our one cards. We pray for our children back in the classrooms today. We pray for our young people. And Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you would draw many to yourself, that you would grant to them the gift of faith that leads to life. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our soon-coming King. Amen.